0: listening to rights up a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub in today's episode we talk to professors Adrian Stone and Eric Hines about the human rights implications of the alleged free speech crisis in university campuses in Australia and UK but also more globally Education Secretary Gavin Williamson on 12 May 2021 introduced the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, and the bill claims to promote freedom of speech in UK universities to counter the chilling effect caused by unacceptable silencing and censoring on university campuses. And similar concerns about free speech and academic freedom on university campuses have also been raised in Australia. And it's important for us to remember that both of these are just manifestations of much larger debates, which are waging far beyond the borders of UK and Australia individually. So to discuss the human rights implications of this alleged free speech crisis in university campuses, we have with us today Professor Adrian Stone, Director of the Center for Comparative Constitution Studies at Melbourne Law School, and Professor Eric Hines, Professor of Law and Humanities, Queen Mary University of London. So to begin, Professor Hines, maybe you could briefly explain to our listeners what the 2021 bill really proposes to do and how it claims to protect the right to free speech.
1: Yes, of course. Um, The bill was originally introduced uh, in response to uh, a number of controversies uh, surrounding outside speakers uh, who were brought into universities. Sometimes uh, against great opposition uh, by students or even by staff. Uh, In some cases, this led to uh, uh, proposals, at least, or attempts to have the speakers disinvited. This caused a lot of outrage uh, in government circles. Uh, And so, what the government proposes to do uh, is to uh, promote a culture of free speech uh, by limiting the ability of some members of a campus community uh, to censor invitations issued by other members uh, of the campus community to controversial speakers.
0: How do you think that these issues that the bill is seeking to target are reflective of the more global debates and free speech that are happening at the moment.
1: Well this is not a controversy uh limited to Britain um as is commonly the case these sorts of controversies tend to uh Uh, tend to boil over in the United States first. And then uh, for a few years, people think that these are just American problems, but little by little, they tend to spread and uh, ever more quickly now in the age of the internet, where uh, local problems often quickly become global problems, particularly American problems, tend very quickly to become global ones. Uh, And so lo and behold, these questions about uh, campus speech, campus speech codes, about uh, inviting outside speakers uh, are becoming more and more uh, heated uh, in in a number of countries throughout the world. Uh, And of course, particularly in democracies that have certain traditions of free speech and of uh, open inquiry at universities. Uh, And so now really in a number of countries, certainly, for example, on the European continent, uh, we're seeing uh, these sorts of debates increasing uh, year by year.
0: Professor Stone, maybe you could jump in here and tell us a little bit about Australia in this context and especially the uh, French review and whether you think that the debate in Australia has shaped up quite similarly to the UK and um, more globally, starting with the US? So I do think the debate has shaped up similarly. And
2: I think that is at least as much because the debates steep from one country to another, even if the underlying problems don't. So I think that um, there is an extent to which there have been so there has been an eye on the United States here. And there has been something of an assumption that we might have the same problems in Australian universities as as arguably exist in the US. And I'm a bit critical of that assumption. But so let me just say a little bit about the Australian context. There have been a series of controversies. I think that it's pretty well established that they've been fairly limited um, in number and significance. But There have been a number of controversies, including instances in which I think um, uh, speakers were um, uh, subject, I think, to excessive opposition when they wanted to come onto campuses. Um, There's been a lot of criticism of the universities, largely associated with the Conservative government, so from the political right. Um, And there was a review into free speech in Australian universities headed by a former Chief Justice of the High Court, Robert French, and the findings of that review were, to summarise, a long review. First of all, that there was no, identify, there was no evidence of a free speech crisis in Australian universities. Um, secondly, that Australian universities already had considerable um, mechanisms within their governing documents to deal with academic freedom and freedom of speech. And thirdly, and I agree with this as well, that they probably weren't specific and strong enough The result was that there was a model code proposed. It is not a code that um, Australian universities have to adopt, Uh, but many of them have moved either to adopt it or to, I think, improve their own free speech policies in the light of it. Um, And uh, it was a specific recommendation of the French review that the model code not be compulsory, not be legislated. that universities have some room to respond themselves, but relevantly, the model code in relation to um, controversial speakers it takes the view it should only be in circumstances where speakers might subject uh, people within the university of community to a humiliation or intimidation, and that, that only in those circumstances would it be legitimate not to uh, extend or to an invitation to a speaker who wanted to come onto campus. So that's approximately. Um, the best short summary I can give you of a complex situation.
0: Um, That's excellent. And that was very helpful, both of your responses. So to pick up on something you said, Professor Stone, um, about empirically whether the claims of a free speech crisis are um, exaggerated or not. So as in Australia and as the French Review found in Australia, reports by the higher education regulator in the UK suggest that claims of free speech crisis are exaggerated. So to just uh, give you an example, regarding no platforming of speakers, of the 62,000 requests by students for external speakers at English universities in 2017-18, only 53 were rejected by a student union or university, which is less than 0.1% of the total. And similar observations were made in a 2018 report by the Joint Committee on Human Rights in the UK. So, my question is to you, Professor Heinz. So, in light of these reports, how would you respond to the claim that there is a free speech crisis in universities
1: i I think there are a number of problems with this statistic uh, and incidentally, yes, whether there's a crisis or simply a problem, you know nowadays everything's a crisis, it's an overused word. Uh, I certainly do think that there is a problem um And this statistic is extremely misleading, and I'm surprised that anybody uses it. Um, uh, Let's let's take a close look at it, right? It speaks of more than 60,000 requests for external speaker events. Overwhelmingly, the speaking events at universities do not involve major social controversies. An outside speaker might be uh, invited to talk about a new astronomical discovery, a new discovery in biology, uh, new information about Shakespeare's childhood. There are... uh, Infinite numbers of speaking events that take place that are not, that simply don't have anything to do with general social controversies. So that number is useless, 60,000. What they needed to do was, was look at the number of speakers who, uh, Who's, who were taking somehow controversial positions on somehow contr- uh, 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 socially controversial matters, that would have been much smaller at any given university, um, right? So the number would have to be reduced from 62,000 to at most a few hundred, and I'm not even sure it would go that high. When we look at it from that perspective, 53 is not a small number. Quite the contrary, it's a very large number. Uh, and moreover, and perhaps this is the even more important point, human rights are not about projecting, protecting only problems that exist in high, in high numbers. Human rights are often about protecting uh, the the small numbers of people uh, again people who are dissenters dissenters often exist in small numbers. But I would say that again. However, 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 we want to uh, construe this number of fifty three. It means that people were rejected because of their opinions or because of their viewpoints or standpoints, right, Uh, when it's precisely the function of university to examine controversial views?
2: So, you know, I absolutely agree that it's always a good time to talk about freedom of speech on university campuses, and I absolutely agree that a small number of instances is enough to justify a really serious discussion. I actually think that these kind of events are quite rare. Uh, but the effects of them can last a very long time. They can be very damaging to the university community. Um, So I want to take them really, really seriously. The reason that I do insist on just getting a a little bit of perspective on this is that I think we also have to realise that there's a very particular context in which criticisms are currently being launched at universities. And some of this is I think intimately associated with the rise of the populist right. And certainly this is evident in Australian politics, that there is a populist right that is deeply suspicious of elites, of any form of expertise and of independent institutions that might hold governments to account. And universities are all of those things. And so in my view, The exaggeration of the crisis in university risks giving fuel to the populist criticism that seeks fundamentally to undermine the authority of universities. Now, I think that makes it all the more important that we may take a small number of problems seriously. But I think it is also important to understand the context and get the perspective. Because in my view, Australian universities are Forums where controversial ideas are discussed all the time.
1: In a sense, I, I certainly agree with you that there's, that there's um, a hysteria being whipped up on, on, you know, on, the, on the political right. Having said that, I think that there's a lot of uh, hyperbolic rhetoric uh, at both extremes. Um, uh, and I think within university departments in particular, the politics are often very different from those of society as a whole. Uh, and so I would like to see actually both extremes uh, moderated a bit and which and I think actually free speech serves that part.
2: So perhaps I could just say that um, this is going to be no fun Eric if we continue to be in furious agreement all the time um, <laughs> but I will say that I couldn't agree more about the need to, for moderation on both, um, on both ends of the extreme here. I, I think a certain amount of Passionate uh, commitment and overstatement is you know part of campus life and part of political life. what I hope would be special about universities and what I think universities and university academics ought to be doing is to be have a special responsibility to promote genuine open-mindedness reasoning and evidence give and evidence um, provision in the course of argumentation um, and that that's a that's a hard task but it's one that I think would be worth um exploring because otherwise you're right we're left with the culture war and the feature of a culture war is you know a lack of reason um and good motive on both sides a lot of the time
0: well I think that the agreement is fascinating because it kind of shows that the extent to which the polarization actually exists is also in fact um exaggerated Uh, So maybe we can now move on to the specific legislative proposals in the UK. And again, to go back to something we started with, it is important for us to remember that all of these issues, which we talk about in the context of the UK or Australia, have a lot of global resonance. So uh, my next question is, uh, the supporters of the bill argue that policies such as no platforming, which the bill targets, raise free speech concern by clamping down on the free and open discussion of all ideas. And no platforming, as I'm sure you're all aware, refers to the refusal to provide a platform to speakers who further marginalize disadvantaged or subordinated groups. So my first question to you is to you, Professor Hines. You have argued that no platforming is at the is at odds with the mission of higher education. So can you explain this claim and how no platforming raises free speech concerns?
1: Yes, yes, gladly. Um... Yeah, and here um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to become just a little bit professorial. <laughs> so uh, feel free to interrupt me if you find yourself falling asleep. We're in the habit of talking about liberal democracy uh, as if liberalism and democracy basically entail the same values. Um, sometimes they do. Sometimes the phrase liberal democracy is useful. In the case of free speech, it's terribly confusing. Um, the uh, the overwhelmingly, the arguments that we have about free speech have been framed within the vocabulary and the concepts of classical liberalism. What do I mean by that? The classical liberal view of free speech is that we need, or the classical liberal view of anything is that politics should always optimize individual freedom. It should always allow as much freedom as possible, limited only by possible harms caused in the exercise of freedoms. right? That would be the outer limit of any given freedom, including free speech. Now, what does that mean for universities? It means that we have to have for each case, kind of platonic guardians who are in the business of deciding how, of measuring out everyone's fair share of speech, how much freedom should everyone get. I think this is totally wrong. And so in my own work, I've argued that uh, the liberal, this kind of liberal calculus of freedom versus harm gets us nowhere. It simply becomes another way of rephrasing the same old debates, or as Adrian said, the same old culture wars, and what we need that is actually a democratic model, which is very different from a liberal model here. What do I mean by a democratic model? I would admit any speaker. What matters are the rules of the game, the rules of the discussion. How is that speaker then being invited? What kind of event is it? If you're going to invite speakers, what's important is that there's a platform, and this is very easy nowadays in the era of the internet, where the whole university community is informed. You identify who's doing the inviting, whether it's an individual or a group, right? You advertise it to the whole university community. Everyone's invited. No private uh, uh, meetings on, you know, at least on, you know, state financed. Uh, uh campuses which which are most of the campuses uh, in Europe uh and then there's always the final rule is that there is an, always an opportunity for cross-examination you don't have gurus who come say what they want to say and then leave a lot of controversial speakers simply wouldn't come because they would know that they were being subject to cross-examination and many of them don't like that
2: Oh, okay, so I'm going to be professorial for a moment and offer a competing uh, frame. Um, so, um, and this this comes from my uh, recent book, which I, I co-authored with Carolyn Evans. So, I mean, my view overall about uh, inviting speakers onto a university campus is that what is important to remember is that this is a university and universities ought not be thought simply as forums for the politics that might occur in the society at large. They're special communities of research and teaching. And the way in which activity is conducted on a university campus, including the way in which speakers who are invited from outside Uh, the way in which we respond to them and and decide who can come and who can't and what circumstances, all of that has to be consistent and really driven by fundamentally university values. Now, I think that universities ought to place a very high priority on having a very diverse range of speakers and absolutely permit uh, the unorthodox and the uncomfortable idea to be expressed in campus. I think those are university ideas. But um, uh, I think universities should not be shy about curating the speech environment in a way that reflects what academic ideals are. And so we should be uh, really rather insistent um, on things like the provision of an opportunity for response. Um, now, that all that is said, I think where Eric and I differ is this. There are a very small number of speakers who I think having them on a university campus is inimical to the kind of community that you want a university to be. So, for example, I think, you know, the worst forms of, say, white press supremacy. Now, in my country, those would be basically illegal anyway, but there might be some places where they're not. Or, for example, I think the most egregious forms of, say, anti-vaccination activism, which actually operate not only with a disregard of, but with a fundamental contempt of the knowledge-seeking mission of universities.
1: You see, I guess the problem is I've heard in at in a number of academic uh, conferences, and there are actually publications written also to suggest that climate change deniers, we need to, you know, exclude them too. Uh, people, you know, who, who with differing views on uh, the rights of trans people. Again, it, it always looks like a small ex- exception, but you know, these exceptions they don't stop; they just keep coming and coming. And each one has a passionate reason for it. And it's always just going to be a very uh, narrow exception. Well, before you know it, particularly once you allow one group's exception, then it becomes harder and, and harder to disallow other exceptions. I don't think the question is, obviously nobody has a right to a university platform. Um, uh, certainly no outsider has a right to it, but I don't think that's the question. Uh, again, the the question is if some members of an academic community um, make the autonomous decision like a student group that they want to uh, invite a speaker uh, because it, uh, 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 then the question is whether other members of the academic community have any standing at all to censor that view. That's really what we're talking about, right? It's not. I don't think it is an abstract discussion about what are the values of a, you know, or the mission of a university. Because again, that 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 simply presupposes what often needs to be discussed. And again, it so sort of it preempts. It, it says, "Well, we've already solved this problem uh, of, of what a university is and what its mission is, and so now we can move on." Uh, but but who's made that decision, right? That that, that ultimately becomes authoritarian. Um, my last point would be that, uh, and again, well, why I get nervous about a model about academic values, again, whatever those are and whosoever they are. Um, uh, A a university is not only actually about the pursuit of academic values. That's what happens in the classroom. That's what happens at the library. That's what happens in the laboratory. But a university community is also a community. And in a democracy, it means it's a democratic community within a democracy. Now, what student groups uh, do when they invite speakers is not always meant to recapitulate what's going on in classrooms. It is an expression of them, of their community identity, and not simply their academic identity or allegiance.
2: I think um, we have to remember, whatever approach we take here, there are costs and there are risks. So if we take the view that every speaker is welcome on campus, let's remember that there are costs. One of the costs might be the co-option of the prestige of a university to a thoroughly unworthy cause like, say, intelligent design or eugenics or something like this. Another thing to remember is that I think it's a mistake always to characterise an invitation to a speaker on campus as members of a university community who are genuinely interested in knowing what this speaker wants to say. Very often, well, not very often, but at least in some circumstances, it's quite clear what you have is one group of students provoking deliberately another group of students. which is part of ordinary politics, but it's not quite the valuable, robust, open discussion. And lastly, of course, there are the costs to members of the community who may be the subject of very, very hurtful and harmful kinds of speech. And we just have to remember that those don't fall evenly. You know, they fall on minority students more than they fall on the majority of students. They fall on women more than they fall on men. Now, I really think part of the point of a university education is to learn a certain degree of civic courage. That is the capacity to hear the really horrible offensive idea and respond. And I'm really interested in universities being able to work with their students in building up those values. But we shouldn't pretend that there are no costs and no risks to either um, kind of approach here. Um, And secondly, I'm just not as agnostic about what the values of a university are. I think that there are instances of universities worldwide that have done a brilliant job at, you know, self-consciously as a community engaging in a process of identifying university values, the Chicago principles. One, and, you know, I don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily suggest every university adopt those principles themselves, but what's wonderful about them is how they've brought a university community into a dialogue about what that university is about. Other universities have done the same and we uh, detail some of them in our book. I think that it is within the scope um, of a university to create a conversation about university identity That is a very productive way to go and can be the basis for, you know, a thoughtful approach to having a university environment that is both really open, but really, really respectful of the fundamental mission of the
0: university. To actually pick up on the idea, of course, to students from minority communities, so Another right that sort of commonly comes into play in these debates is the right to non-discrimination of these students. So on the one hand, it is argued that forms of speech which discriminate against these students by perpetuating their disadvantage or by violating their dignity should not be protected as free speech. And on the other hand, the UK government is very careful or has been very careful to emphasise that the new law would not legitimize hate speech or the incitement of forms of violence and abuse. Instead, it would only protect lawful forms of free speech, which the government claims are currently being suppressed for offending the feelings of oversensitive students. So, Professor Stone, um, in in your opinion, is this a fair characterization of the tension between the right to free speech and the right to non-discrimination?
2: So, I think there is a tension. I think there are circumstances in that I can think of that involve student oversensitivity. But there are also examples that I can think of that in, involve students making really pretty legitimate claims uh, um, as to why they ought to, ought to be expected to suffer certain kinds of really what is, is harassment and discrimination in their own campuses. The difficulty is drawing the line between the two. And I I simply, I I don't think that there is an easy way out here. And I don't think, I just, it it is really fair just to say that every speaker should be allowed precisely because at least some speech is going to really be harmful. And I don't think it's plausible to say that no speech uh, causes a harm about which we we, uh, should be Uh, concern. It's difficult to get this right. I think we ought to remember as well that universities ought to be inculcating in their students an attitude of engagement and preparedness to listen and to respond and a confidence that will ultimately make them much less susceptible to this kind of discriminatory treatment. But I don't think we can just expect that that students turn up at university like that. So it's a process that we engage in over some years, I think, of encouraging our students to be more and more resilient in the face of this. The result is, and I can't put it any um, better than I already have, there are some very few, very extreme forms of speech that I think it's not fair to allow to occur on a university campus
1: again, I I think I am struggling a bit with, you know, with with some of what Adrian is saying, although I certainly appreciate those, you know, many of the concerns. Um, Now, in addition to anti-vaxxers, people who question trans identities. Oh climate change deniers now we've just added two more categories intelligently designing eugenics um, those
2: are your categories, not mine. I hadn't said nothing about no but trans many identity
1: have, or, but many people have Adrian many right, and many have. of them are wrong but they, that's the point that's the point you see who this is where we're setting ourselves up is, as platonic guardians um society you know who you know who's rational and who isn't standards of rationality are not constant but let me let me get to the more specific question about dis- discrimination because I think this is important and I absolutely agree that the question of power dynamics has to be taken into account and and here I disagree with many free speech advocates who simply ignore it and so here I think Adrian you're entirely right to take To take these into account, to talk in particular about, you know, a whole history of women being subordinated, not only in society, but in universities, as well as ethnic minorities and, uh, you know, sexual minorities and many other people, Uh, I take that very, very seriously. The approach that I take in my writing, in my book and elsewhere, is that University have many means of promoting diversity, uh, they are, and, and, and more and more they avail themselves of these sorts of means, right? In other words, through freshers initiation weeks, so other sorts of, of, of campaigns where we absolutely promote values of diversity, of pluralism, uh, of ethnic difference, of, 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 of women's empowerment, and so forth. I favor all of that. I think universities should have more of those programs, and it can do those things, without having to censor those who disagree. That's my only point. Because one thing is for sure, when you start censoring those who disagree, it doesn't make them go away. It provides just more fuel for their fire. Whereas you let them go and you put them through a nice solid cross-examination, right? That is often far more effective.
2: We can play this game all day where you can, point to the problem of where you draw the line and therefore say because of the possibility that we won't draw it in the right place we mustn't draw it at all. If you're going to take that view you need to squarely face the consequences of it and that is university life will become harder for some members of our community. It will be harder for them to be students, it will be harder for them to be academics, It will be harder for them to do what they come to the university to do, which is to learn and to pursue knowledge through academic inquiry. So my view is that there are exceptional circumstances in which we protect that activity. Now, they're very limited, but can I point out that if you say to some nefarious group, you can't come onto campus, You're not stopping them from taking their views to the steps of Parliament House or Hyde Park Corner or anywhere on the internet. You are simply saying this is our community and in this community we want to prioritise some other activity.
0: Professor Heinz, you talk about how bringing speakers in and subjecting them to you know, very rigorous cross-examination is the best way forward or in, in sort of your democratic model. Um, so Professor Stone, my question is, do, do you think that practically viable, can university students rigorously cross-examine a, a speaker that they've externally invited, taking into account the power imbalances that exist, which I think all of us are in agreement is important to consider.
2: So, I mean, I'd, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that idea and I, I think that that's an excellent model that I hope would prevail in most cases. Sometimes what is happening now, and I certainly can think of this happening in Australia, is what is happening is someone's coming onto campus and they know that it's going to promote a huge reaction and what they're actually wanting is the reaction, not the debate. So there's a certain amount, I think, of, mm, I think, a sort of over-optimistic, um, even naivete in the idea that it's going to be possible just because the nature of some of these speakers is deliberately to um, to stir up a melee rather than actually to have um, some kind of a debate. And, you know, Eric, I think if I could just perhaps lay down a little bit of a challenge to you, um, I think, um, You really need to be able to say to those students who will be disadvantaged, who will be more disadvantaged than their peers, why it is um, that they ought to suffer. Uh, Disadvantaged to allow a speaker onto campus who does nothing to advance their education, who does nothing to advance uh, the research mission of a university, who does nothing uh, to advance uh, the civic life of a university, who is purely destructive, uh, why, that kind, why they should have to suffer that cost and others don't.
1: Just, just as a preliminary, I'll, I, I just, so there's no confusion. My position is not that we have to avoid line drawing problems because they're difficult. That's not my position at all. Um, uh, my position is that we should not be in the business of line drawing, that that is as a matter of principle illegitimate. Uh, so it's not that it's difficult to do, it's that we shouldn't be doing it at all. Um, but, but, but I think more directly to Adrian's uh, challenge, you know, what, what, what will I say? First of all, my, my first response would be to answer the question with a question, um, which maybe Adrian can pick up. Is there, does Adrian have a concrete example in mind of where a controversial uh, um, speaker was invited and that caused um, one or more students to be unable to carry on as students um, or staff members to be unable. Okay, now again, I'm not talking here about, what, you know, about you know, sort of harassment in the more typical sense. Uh, clearly, that is a problem and that has to be combated. That has nothing to do with free speech, as I've written extensively. Uh, you know, simply using, you know, racist remarks, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm only talking about invited speakers in public platforms. Okay, that's all I'm talking about. And I'm wondering if there's an example where an invited speaker in a public platform uh, um, rendered it impossible, uh, as opposed to just upsetting to carry on. Um, uh, Again, I'm a a member of two uh, two minority groups. I'm Jewish and I'm gay. I do... I and many like me would not have problems with Holocaust deniers or with anti-gay speakers. Quite the contrary, according to the democratic model that I proposed, I would have them come over and I would grill them to the hilt.
2: So I think you simply just put it too high. One, can I point to one single event that made it impossible? I think these things are cumulative, number one. And number two, I don't think the standard should be impossibility. I don't see why it should become significantly harder for minority students to feel that they're part of a community and that they can take part in their classes um, uh, because of the atmosphere of political discussion on campus. So I think you're just putting the bar too high there, um, to be fair.
1: Well, okay, but now if if I'm putting the bar too high and now if we're talking about all sorts of cumulative effects, well, again, where does that stop?
0: Maybe a helpful way for us to summarize this would be to just think a bit about what the underlying conception of free speech is that sort of lies underneath what the two of you are saying and what the two sides of the debate kind of propose. So my question is, do you think that even if we're not talking about the two extreme spectrums of the debate, the two sides are using the word freedom of speech very differently and in some sense sort of talking past each other?
2: Well, I certainly think we've been talking past each other uh, to some extent. Now I, I know you've sort of raised this question, is, well, is there a common meaning that we can ta- attach to freedom of speech which will allow us to resolve this? and And actually, no, there's not. And it's one of the beauties of of being a free speech scholar, that this is a contested concept, and that we're also talking about, you know what are the values that that this serves? And you know Eric and I both agree that freedom of speech is really important. It comes down to, I think we disagree. On limited, very limited cases, um, where, um, we, we think that at the point of application to specific controversies, that's really where I think we disagree. And this is an endemic kind of argument that we have about freedom of speech. Um, but here's a a, diff, a question that I take the view of. I think if you take a view like yours, Eric, um, uh, then I would think you, it would affect a, separate but somewhat important question is what is the duty of universities to themselves speak out where say members of their community are targeted by a controversial speaker so if you had a controversial speaker on a campus who for instance was at least arguably islamophobic my own view is that the price of allowing such a speaker onto the campus might be that the university itself ought to make a statement in support of its students, that is to use its own power of speech um, to contradict those ideas which have come onto campus um, uh, because of their effect on some parts of the community. But that's a controversial position. Some people think universities ought not to take make public statements of that kind, whereas I think it's actually entailed by your position.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you said this. It's a lovely point of agreement. Let them speak. And yes, let universities take strong positions. Why not? Why, you getting, why put up this pretense? You put my point better than I could have made it. That's exactly right. That uh, the, the better way to do it is let the speech go forward, but then let the whole academic community, however it wants to, and in a hundred different ways, express its disagreement rather than not even letting the debate ever take place.
0: So beyond no platforming, there are some other practices that have been subject to critique from a free speech perspective, such as providing trigger warnings or creating safe spaces for students from specific groups. So trigger warnings warn students that certain material might cause them to have a negative emotional response while safe spaces provide students of specific groups and environment in which they are guaranteed that they will not be exposed to discrimination or other forms of emotional or physical harm. So do practices such as being required to provide trigger warnings, you see them as restricting or impinging on academic freedom?
2: I don't see them as restricting or impinging on freedom of speech. A trigger warning is a warning, right? It doesn't, you, you then... I have access to material. The material could be taught. There's simply a warning on it. Whether or not they're a good idea or not, I don't know, but I don't think that they restrict anyone's freedom of speech. I don't think that they are, I don't really have very strong concerns about them from an academic freedom standpoint either because the most important thing for me, for example, is that the academic can then teach the content Really, and express the views about that material that he or she has by virtue of their academic expertise. Um, The reason I think they're controversial is that I think they seem to promote an idea that, you know, that students are somehow to be protected against things that they find difficult. I think that there is some material that would be disablingly upsetting so I think we ought to be a little bit careful for some of our students who are going to be subjected to really difficult experiences but I don't think that they should ever be very widely used precisely because I think for the most part universities should be about getting to grips with things that are a little bit
1: uncomfortable
0: Professor Haynes do you have a response
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess what would concern me is um, whether an academic is being required. If an academic simply wants to, yeah, I agree there, I agree with Adrian entirely. Sure, why not? I like these kind of non-censorship ways of dealing with the problems rather than censoring. I would, however, uh, uh, want to warn against teachers being required to have trigger warnings, because again, for me, then again, then we're starting to go down. It's, that's only a step away from censorship. Uh, And again, I I, I, I would be very loath to interfere with academics choices about how they want to conduct uh, Mm -hmm. um, a classroom discussion or presentation.
0: So maybe I'll pick up on the point that both of you made about uh, being overprotective towards students. And some authors in fact claim that practices like requiring trigger warnings of providing safe spaces, caudal student minds. So, uh, Professor Hans, my question is to you. You actually write that the policy of providing safe spaces, while originally innocuous, in has now come to signify something altogether more alarming. So I'd like uh, to ask you why you think that is, and um, how also do you respond to the argument on uh, overprotection of students?
1: Yes, well, what I meant by safe spaces originally having been innocuous uh, is that originally, as far as I know, a safe space simply meant a kind of a designated area for students to gather who were who felt provoked by or offended by some campus event, right, where they could come together, ride right, and talk and and so forth. Um, uh, there again because that doesn't entail censoring anybody so as far as I'm concerned that itself is also freedom of association um and it's entirely legitimate it's also freedom of speech really right freedom of speech and freedom of association pretty much always go together um and so that original idea of the safe space I have no problem with whatsoever you know again that's that's for students. Uh, uh, themselves to decide if they want to do that. Um, why would one interfere with that? It's their own business. Where I think safe, the concept of the safe space started becoming more dangerous, uh, and again, I've seen examples, I've written about some examples of this, is where it suddenly becomes declared that the whole university has to be a safe space, right? And therefore, again, we therefore have grounds for uh, eliminating uh, controversial speakers. Um, so then, safe space just becomes another uh, another term for censoring. And you know, let's then at least be honest about it.
2: Do you know, in my academic life, I've never come across safe space. I sort of regard them as almost myth- urban myths within the universities. They're not a very common practice, and I certainly agree that the entire university shouldn't be a safe space. But in principle, I'm I'm not opposed to. Measures that um, provide students with forums in which they can uh, feel um, that that just at least for a time and in a place they are not subject to some of the rigors um, of um, of being in a diverse community. I mean I've been following on Twitter very recently in fact some Oxford academics of the law faculty, people of color who have been detailing some of their experiences as academics and students at university that have impressed upon me just how very tiring it must be to be constantly correcting misapprehensions about yourself by virtue of the skin colour, to be constantly explaining that, yes, you are entitled to be in this place and no, that you're not. Yes, you are part of this class and, yes, you are a professor. uh, the, and, um, we constantly subject, you know, really quite things that are casual in a sense, but also, you know, deeply racist in another sense. Now, I think that the giving, if we are going to encourage a lot of freedom within our university, precisely because it, you know, is going to be so much harder for some members of the community really to feel part of it than others, that whatever we can do to give some respite from that, you know is basically a very good idea. Um, can I say that I'm mostly most sympathetic with that in relation to students and particularly students in their early universities um, in their early part of the university experience uh, that we should be most solicitous of because I would hope as you go through university you will gain confidence in dealing with these really difficult situations and be less affected by it and we should be committing ourselves to make sure that happens.
0: So that brings me to my last question which is actually something we started with um, which is in the issue of backlash and implications. So Some claim that these practices, which we've been talking about, which is no platforming and trigger warnings and safe spaces, they foster separateness or polarization on university campuses. And this leads to increased animosity between groups, which then sets us back on achieving human rights goals, such as the racial and gender equality. How would the two of you respond to that? Professor Stone, would you like to start? I'd want to see some evidence of that before I was prepared to
2: embrace it. Um you know, I think we shouldn't assume that that's going to be the result. And it's at least as plausible that a judicious use of those practices creates, on the one hand, an atmosphere of respect and a kind of form of respite and support that you know, makes living in a university community
1: possible. I mean, I agree with Adrian that evidence about this kind of claim, uh, that these discussions are promoting polarization. uh, Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine even what would count as evidence, but let's just assume it, right? Even if we're not sure, well, You know, I'm not sure it's ever been proved that human beings are not to some degree tribal, that we don't somehow tend to gravitate toward those with whom we have affinities. Uh, uh, Again, and why deny that, right? Why deny that? Once again, I would say, why would we want the illusion that a university community is going to be a a Shangri-La? Yes, people will come with uh, you know, with with identities of any different kind, of of of, 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 a, of a number of different kinds, and those identities will in turn shape the worldviews, and therefore shape disagreements with people who have other who hold other worldviews. And so, I, I can only repeat what I've said before: let those discussions take place. Let's not be afraid of them.
0: That seems to be an excellent note to end this on. And uh, that's all from me as well. So thank you so much to the both of you for participating. And I love being a part of this conversation. And I hope the two of you enjoyed it as well.
1: I've enjoyed it immensely.
0: Thanks, Gauri. Thanks, Eric. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was produced and hosted by Gauri Pillay and edited by Christy Calloway Gale. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Dobby. Thanks to our production team members Monica Arango Alaya and Natasha Hallcroft ems for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.